You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Today we begin a new sermon series on the book, or what is known as the Letter of James. Now, if you're not familiar with who James was, James was the biological half-brother of Jesus. However, James was a late adopter of his brother's messianic claims. The Gospels of both Mark and John attest to the fact that James, like the rest of the family, initially thought their sibling Jesus was out of his mind. They didn't believe in him. James and his family, in fact, at one point advised Jesus to look for a different career. But then, apparently, something changed. And perhaps the clearest expression of this change comes to us in the first chapter of the book of Acts, as we read the description of who was gathered in the upper room after Christ's ascension to heaven and just before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Listen carefully. It reads, All were united in their devotion to prayer, along with some women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Somewhere along the way, Likely after what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection, James, the skeptical brother, became James, the devoted disciple. Eventually, we learn again through the book of Acts and also through Paul's letter to the Galatians that James rose to a position of leadership within the body of Christ. You see, when Peter moved on to plant churches, James took over the oversight of the mother church in Jerusalem. And this first Christian community ever formed, the same one that, by the way, we looked at for those last couple of weeks, thanks to that brief snapshot in Acts chapter 2, this same community, the first Christian community, fell under hard times during James's leadership. They dealt with a great, a great famine and increased poverty. They faced intensifying persecution from the Jewish religious leadership. And no doubt, James gained a lot of wisdom during this trying season of time. Wisdom that he seeks to impart to us through this letter. Now, despite all this positive buildup, you should know the book of James has not always been a fan favorite within the Christian community. Our own Martin Luther of Lutheranism condescendingly referred to the book of James as a letter of straw, and he actually sought unsuccessfully to have the entire book removed from the Bible. You may ask, why? Well, much of the bad press about James comes from a misreading a misperception of this letter being about what is called works-based righteousness. Many have claimed James is, is, is counter to the gospel. It's talking about needing to prove uh, or earn our salvation through our works. But as we read James carefully and fully, we're going to see this isn't a book about works that lead unto salvation. We're going to see this is a book about faith in Christ that works. This isn't a letter that denies it's all about the grace of God. No, we're going to see this is a letter that challenges us not to value grace as cheap, but instead to actually live out of the grace that God provides and to tangibly extend that grace to others. With this introduction, let's begin to explore this highly practical letter that challenges us not just to be hearers, but also doers of the word of God. Here's James chapter one, verses one through four. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of James, chapter one, verses one through four. 
The letter from James reads as follows. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let's hear from Pastor Chris. Right out of the gate, James gives us a bit of a jolt, doesn't he? I mean, absent are the normal pleasantries we find in a letter, say from Paul or Peter, you know, offering words of greeting or perhaps a prayer of blessing. No, James gives us none of that. Instead, he just dives right in and lays down his first wise words, words which, if we're honest, initially strike us as being anything but wise. He writes, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, there are many in the church who've been taught or who have themselves crafted a false gospel. Hearing of the freedom and the victory that is ours in Christ, some Christians then assume or even promote the notion that the Christian life is one of continual blessing, endless triumph and success marked by uninterrupted praise and thanksgiving. But here, from the very first words of his letter, James wants to set us straight about such a belief, while also offering us a fresh perspective concerning the nature of the Christian life. Notice his words here. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. James doesn't write if we experience trials. He purposefully writes whenever we experience them. Again, for many Christians today, especially in the Western world, the concept of suffering as a part of our faith in Christ is a mostly foreign and often surprising revelation. Yet this should not be the case because James is not somehow the lone voice on this subject. All of the biblical writers, even Jesus himself, openly talk about not only the possibility, but the inevitability of facing hardships as a part of our faith journey. Now, I want to be clear. James is not telling us to go looking for trouble, to somehow play the martyr, or to instigate conflict as some badge of honor in following Jesus. No, James is acknowledging trouble has a way of finding us, whether we are ready for it or not, or frankly, whether we like it or not. Whether it be a minor inconvenience or a major frustration, a season of undue stress or a gut-punching life change or loss, troubles and trials come to everybody. And Christians are not exempt or immune from this reality. Bad things happen to all of us because we continue to live in a sinful, broken world, a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, a creation that is looking for its redemption but that it has not yet seen that fully and completely made new. We ourselves, as followers of Jesus, are works in progress. Forgiven, yes. Ultimately saved from death, hallelujah. But still liable to make mistakes, to experience failure, and even willfully disobey the Lord along the way. And so James takes it as a given that difficulty and suffering will be the universal experience of all people, including Christians. However, in the midst of acknowledging the inevitability of the hardships we will face, did you notice James isn't giving us advice? He's actually extending a command. Listen again. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. Consider that command is a thinking verb. 
James is not telling us how to feel about our trouble, the trouble we will encounter. James is not telling us to fake it in order to make it, to put on a happy face and pretend that everything is fine when troubles come our way. James is not telling us either to tap into the power of positive thinking and to be more optimistic when things in our life don't go as we expected. No, what James is telling us is the perspective we need to adopt when struggles and suffering come our way. And that perspective we are to take, you heard it, is one of pure joy? What? Are you kidding, James? You can't be serious. Actually, he is. And once again, James is not alone in paradoxically associating joy with life's hardships. Paul and Peter did our devotional this week, the written one, and yes, Jesus make the same connection. But, but how can this be? Where could there possibly any, be any joy in our trials? I mean, how can we rejoice when life threatens, when life hurts and disappoints? Something that can help clarify this puzzling association is to distinguish the biblical usage of the word joy from how we use this term today. Biblically, rejoicing isn't about being or acting happy. No, the call to rejoice, while it may include positive feelings, is less about perfectly managing our emotions, and it's more about making an intentional choice about how we view our lives. In other words, considering it pure joy means choosing to exercise our faith in God rather than to become limited or confined by how we are feeling about our situation. James is encouraging us to take hold of a confidence that is rooted not in our circumstances, but in the goodness of God, the Lord's sovereign control over all things, human history, the transformation of our very humanity itself. While our circumstances may be negative and along with them our feelings about our situation, considering it pure joy is to choose to focus on the assurance that God is not absent, but very much in the midst of our troubles. If the incarnation, God coming down to us in Christ, if Pentecost, the Lord giving us, putting his spirit inside of us, if both of these historical realities tell us anything, it is that God is never removed from our struggles and our suffering. Even more than this, considering it pure joy is to trust in the promise of God's broader work in providing for us, of being able to bring good out of whatever trials we are facing. And we can have this faith because of the revelation of the cross and the resurrection, where what was intended to deny and destroy God actually became the means by which all humanity can be redeemed and restored. Still, we might wonder, okay, still, why? Why do we have to go through such trials, the difficulties and disappointments, the afflictions and the pains of this life, um, if God is with us in our troubles, if God can bring and God will bring good out of whatever we suffer, why does God allow us to face any hardships at all? As James continues, he offers an answer as he writes, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, when we hear that word test, we think of school and exams. We think of passing or failing, but that is not what James is referring to here when he talks about testing. Another common misconception among Christians is that God sends trials our way for the purpose of testing our faith. However, this is not 
what James is declaring, that whatever suffering or hardship we face is orchestrated by God in order to verify or somehow prove our belief in him. My friends, we must not confuse purpose and effect. While biblically, we are assured that God can and God will bring good out of whatever difficulties we endure, this is not the same thing as asserting that God caused the trouble we are encountering. In fact, much of the trouble we encounter in this world is not because of God, it's because of human sinfulness and foolishness, both our own and that of others. And the rest of the tribulations we contend with are the result of the devil and of other spiritual forces opposed to God and therefore evil, what the Bible calls principalities and powers. Okay, then you say, well, if God isn't testing our faith in him through trials, why does God allow our faith to be tested by hardships and suffering? And this brings us back to the word testing as used in this verse. The meaning of this word is not about, again, taking or either passing or failing an exam. The word James uses that we translate as testing in our English Bibles is actually a metaphor, a figure of speech that reaches into the world of metallurgy. When a metallurgist excavates a metal, he or she finds it in an ore state. And that means it's in a raw state. And in that raw state of being an ore, the metal in question is not pure. The metal, in other words, has imperfections that rob it of its strength as well as its beauty. Now, in order to purify and thus strengthen and amplify the brilliance of the metal, the metallurgist has to add a catalytic agent along with very, very powerful heat in order to liquefy that ore and in so doing, boil those imperfections out of the metal so that it can reach that higher state of strength and higher state of beauty. Now, if we apply this metaphor to what James is asserting here, the trials that God allows to take place in our lives are, again, not so we can prove ourselves to him. No, the point is, when things in and around us heat up, as we encounter the pressure born of the struggles of this broken world, these are the defining moments when the Lord proves himself to be trustworthy. It is through the trials of our lives that God reveals how he can indeed work through whatever trouble we are facing for a better purpose. Not causing that suffering, but working through our suffering to refine us, to strengthen our reliance upon him, and to deepen our appreciation of the beauty and fullness of life that can only be found in him. James, in fact, narrows down what I just said into a single word, a particular character trait that God works to bring out in all of us in our growth and maturity in Christ. In our English Bibles, that word is perseverance. But in fact, a closer translation of what James is appealing to would be the word steadfastness. To persevere, to be steadfast means in the face of difficulty, not to abandon our direction, not to forsake our purpose. More specifically, in this case, it means not to abandon the Lord's direction, the Lord's purpose for our lives. And so what is that? What is the Lord's fixed direction for our lives? It's to grow in his grace, right? To mature into our best selves, to become like Jesus. Jesus who exemplifies the truest and fullest expression of our humanity. And direction results in purpose. And what is the Lord's purpose for our lives? It's not just to live for ourselves. It's to live for his agenda, for all creation, the redemption restoration and reconciliation of all things. In following him, Jesus calls us to love others like he loves us, to forgive others as he forgives us, to serve others as he serves us. Living like this isn't some part-time deal, something we participate in when we dress up on Sunday, but then every other day of the week doing whatever we purpose to do with ourselves. 
No, this is the Lord's purpose for our lives, our whole lives. Living like this is how we exist and grow in our relationship with Christ. That's why James will go on to say, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Beloved, perseverance, steadfastness, is not something we can work up or achieve on our own. I don't know about you, but I am fickle. And I am forgetful as the day is long. I'm like the Apostle Paul, and frankly, so are you, whether you want to admit it or not. When Paul writes, I can relate. What I should do, I don't do. And what I shouldn't be doing, I end up doing. So understand, this steadfast mind, heart, and will is only ever a product of the operation of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in me when I get out of my own way and yield to the work of the Spirit through me. And what James is pointing out to us is the fact that this work of the Spirit of strengthening our dependence upon the Lord and deepening our appreciation of God's presence and provision is most powerfully exercised when we struggle, when we reach the end of ourselves and there is no one else to whom we can turn but God. Something implied here by James that is often missed in these first couple of verses is that the trials we face are not just what we are forced to endure, but also the temptation in terms of how we respond to what we are facing. In other words, the way we react to difficulty will always reveal what's important to us. The way we respond to life's trials will always expose what or who we truly value. And again, personal confession time. I do not always consider it a joy to suffer. <laughs> I would rather be comfortable than holy. I would rather dictate my own schedule, one that works for me, rather than follow the leading of the Spirit and be worked on so as to be refined. I would rather be affirmed by people to have them like me, rather than to face criticism and rejection in order to please, to glorify the Lord. But here's the thing. When I am ruled by my comforts, I get discouraged and become fiercely resistant when I am asked, when I am forced to change and adapt. How about you? When I am obsessed with having power and being in control, I end up getting testy and extremely defensive about my rights and my autonomy. And I know you do too, because I read your Facebook posts. And when I am ruled by the approval and affirmation of others, I find myself trapped in a constant state of exhaustion that sometimes leads to depression as I keep desperately trying to maintain my positive status, catering to what others want me to be for them. And when my life is not going the way I planned, if the limit of my view when it comes to my relationship with the Lord is waiting for God to fix my circumstances, I will not grow in my faith because God doesn't always give us what we want. God only gives us what we need. And there's a difference. But when I fail to see that difference, my faith will remain conditional. What have you done for me lately, God? And I'll end up worshiping and investing in my circumstances rather than letting my creator deepen my reliance and trust upon him. Are we still struggling with what James says here? Well, then let us ask this of ourselves. What is the Lord's number one goal for you and me? What's the Lord's number one goal for us, for our lives? What would you say? Is it health? Is it wealth? Is it prosperity? Is it comfort? Is it safety? Success. My friends, the Bible declares the Lord's number one goal for our lives is holiness, wholeness. It is for our maturity and growth in Christ. In other words, God's aim for us is not necessarily for us to be successful. 
It is for us to be faithful, fruitful, and these are very different goals. If we focus on being successful, on the job we do or do not get, on the raise, the promotion, the approval, the acceptance, the acquisition, fame, fortune, you fill in the blank. If we focus on success, then our trials will leave us mortally wounded. Instead of just questioning what God is doing, which is fine, we will dare to judge God's character. We will deny his goodness and his love. And those bad attitudes towards God will slowly turn into bad habits in terms of our relationship with God as we back away from the presence and call of Christ. We will stop praying, talking with God, because we will convince ourselves praying doesn't seem to be doing anything. Is that you? We will stop reading the word of God because it doesn't speak to us anymore. It isn't telling us what we want to hear. Is that you? We will stop connecting with other believers because they can't possibly understand what we're going through. Their lives are perfect. They don't know the trouble I've seen. Is that you? As we isolate ourselves from God, in fact, the worst thing we can do whenever we face hardship, what happens next? As we isolate ourselves from God, our fears about whatever we are going through will inevitably give way to frustration, even desperation, as we lash out toward others. Our hurts will not heal. They will fester and become sores of our bitterness and the cause of our constant combativeness and defensiveness. But if we focus on God's direction and purpose for our lives instead, on wholeness, our growth and maturity into our best selves, our trials will not erode our faith. They will open us up, reinforcing and even deepening our relationship with Christ. Beloved, the faith by which we come into this relationship with Jesus is the faith we need to keep walking by in following Christ, turning and relying to Jesus every step of the way, come what may. This is how our faith grows and matures. In such seasons, as we press into and abide in the word and the spirit of God, our awareness of the Lord's presence and his provision will deepen. Experiencing God's faithfulness will reinforce and strengthen our faith in God, increasing the value we place on our relationship with him through Christ. Sometimes when we struggle and suffer, we perceive ourselves as useless, right? But when we consider it joy in our hardships, and look to Jesus, we will be surprised to find that even in seasons of seeming drought in our lives, we can still find fruitfulness. Looking less at our circumstances and more through them, we will discover despite our want that the Lord has still given us what we need, blessings of this life that we can cherish, gifts of grace that we can share and extend to others. So who will you become through whatever you're facing? Who will we become through whatever we're facing. That's the question, isn't it? We're all works in progress. I mean, our refinement into who we are becoming is going to go on until Jesus comes back or we go home to glory. And that means we will encounter things that we never would have chosen for our lives. But we need to embrace life's trials, not just for what they are, but for what God can accomplish through them. Our trials are never out of God's control. We worship a sovereign God who can and is accomplishing his purposes through all things, including our hardships and sufferings. My friends, growth and maturity come from change, both wanted change and unwanted change. Growth and maturity come from invitation and from challenge. Only God can take us where we never intended to go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. That's grace. And it's amazing, but it's not always comfortable. 
the grace of God often comes to us through the most uncomfortable moments and seasons of our lives. But such grace always gives more than it takes. And such amazing grace, the grace of God always leads us home.